I think judgment is obviously super critical in general management and CEO leadership roles. Um, there's lots of people that are very capable who can, who can probably do the technical components or, or manage people, but <clears throat> ultimately a lot of you know, the people in these roles get um, you know, compensated for their, their judgment calls and, and those calls aren't always right. But, so part of that is about the experience that you get to actually have gone through circumstances where you know, you know, you, you're drawing on past experience. But I think part of it obviously is also things like how quickly you can react and your own personal resilience, your intuition, your people connectivity. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader and Advisory Board member, a passionate leader who is dedicated to CSR and community initiatives and is involved in a project called Global Ledger. He studied a Bachelor of Commerce in Economics, Accountancy, Business and Law from Stellenbosch University. His career has involved working at ABN AMRO Bank and roles in corporate business and business development, as well as the country CEO of Singapore at Zurich Financial Services. In 2016, he joined Swiss Re as their CEO of Singapore and later in 2017 become their Asia Pacific CEO. I'm privileged to introduce to you a phenomenal global leader who loves running and has a deep passion for solving the global water crisis. Jonathan Rake. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Excellent. Good afternoon, Craig. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So you've you become a global citizen over the past couple of decades. Where did life start out for you and what fueled your dreams as a child? Okay, so, so life started out back in South Africa, and I think the accent gives that away. Um, I hope it does, because I certainly try and keep that identity, um, despite having been out of the country for around 20 years. So South Africa was, was home. Um, grew up on a, on a sugar farm just on the east coast of South Africa. My, uh, both my parents come from British her um, background heritage, both were born in South Africa. So... Life, looking back now, I'd have to say was quite idyllic in terms of living on a, growing up on a farm in, in Africa and uh, lots of experiences, um, both sort of from a, the country perspective and the diversity that you got there, but also obviously just growing up in, in, in the outdoors uh, on a farm. And I think from an early age, obviously, my parents had uh, been part of, uh, I guess, migration, immigration out to South Africa. Um, they'd always been quite worldly in their thinking. So... I guess the combination of the two um, always had me exploring and thinking about bigger things and things beyond the borders. So that's where it all started. Yeah, I'm sure it was vastly different to your home now in Singapore, where you know you, it's it's more of a concrete jungle rather than a than a big open wide space jungle. It is. Um, it's obviously an extremely populated and dense population country. However, you know, the Singapore's done a good job of. Uh, 
creating green spaces and we, um, we certainly get out and try and find them on a regular basis. Brilliant. So did you find yourself in leadership roles while at school or did it take a little while longer to figure out that you were destined to be a leader? I think I would have to go for the latter, to be honest. I don't think I've quite got over never making a, a head of house or a, a significant school prefect at high school. So I would, uh, I would not be able to sit and say I was always the, uh, the captain or the, um, the leader. Um, I always felt I had the potential, though. Um, so, yes, I mean, sports teams throughout the years, I've had captain roles, etc. But I, I think the, the leadership um, positions that I have subsequently taken on, and I guess in the, over the last decade, have, have been more of a journey getting there and, um, yeah, a competitive drive. And I think the you started with Global Citizen. I think that's been a key component of it. And, and the diversity that I've had through the career and the places I've lived, and um, but always always felt I had... I had potential. I think that that confidence and believing yourself is important. But um, certainly, been a been a longer journey. It didn't start from the beginning on the on the leadership side. Okay. So, so what inspired you to study a bachelor of commerce at the University of Stellenbosch? So, South Africa, and I would say, in the sort of um, it was an interesting time. So, I, I finished school in the um, mid mid nineties. I was very fortunate to go to a, a good boys' private school in, in the country, and. Uh, my parents had certainly worked very hard to get me there, and so I felt I had to absolutely make make the most of it. They were very committed, and certainly from mum's side, there was a, a strong focus to to get a tertiary education and um, and then take take the world on from there. Um, I, I actually sort of followed an older brother down to Stellenbosch. Um, I think you know we have a lot of strong institutions in South Africa and and universities, and the options were were broad, but we. Growing up in Natal and from that area, um, part of this was just about experiencing something far from home, um, but also it was a, certainly a university with a very strong reputation, um, you know, both in the faculty and, and on the sports ground. So it was just a good option. I had people that had sort of paved that way before. Um, a challenge because a lot of our, um, actually, our studies and our, our learning was in, uh, in a different language. So Afrikaans, the, the Dutch heritage language, is, uh, you know, this was an Afrikaans university and back then, most of our lectures were in Afrikaans, so it wasn't a, a slam dunk decision from that perspective. But um, certainly part of the adventure and combining that with uh, just a good institution that I'd, we'd always sort of looked up to. Um, as far as the, the commerce components performed, I, I, like many at that, at that age, had no clue what I wanted to do when, when, I, when I was big, so to speak. Um, I knew where my kind of strengths were, at least from, from going through you know, high school and um, I, I had a, a good feeling that I wanted to work in business in the broader sense, but I really just did not know what I wanted to do. And so the starting point was, um, you know, a broad commerce degree, economics, accountancy, com law, as you've sort of highlighted, would, would probably give me enough of a spread for some options. Um, but why I say it was actually interesting at the time is because, you know, what shaped after that was, was actually probably shaped more by, by my lecturers at the time. It was the time obviously when South Africa was going through a significant transition, um, recently come out of and changed to, to new government, obviously Nelson Mandela time we're talking about. And um, so a lot of great things going on in the country, but a lot of nervousness and uncertainty. So my experiences in the, in the first year or two at, at the university, I, I certainly recall many um, sort of naysaying discussions with, with, with lecturers around the opportunities of the white South African male and, 
you know, best you get abroad and, and all the rest. And it's certainly, I think, the, the adventures that I've had, I am absolutely grateful for those difficult discussions. But, but I've always sort of been grappling with, I wonder whether I left the shores um, through really my own desire or whether it was this kind of uncertainty push. And um, I think many of us at the time were sort of going through that, which is why you saw this flood of sort of educated people leaving the country around the time. So it was, so I would say in, in summary around that is um, the degree was a broad spectrum thing and um, really just trying to set up, set myself up. The the kind of uh, the, the roles and the, the opportunities I've had since then were more shaped by things that happened um, in the places I've been to and the people I've met than I would say in this case a degree at university. Yeah. So yeah, that's a little bit about the launch pad, I guess, that then took me overseas. Yeah, so uh, I'm just kind of curious to delve in there a little bit. You know, you talk about that that transition time when Nelson Mandela was freed uh, from prison and, and came into become this this amazing leader that, that brought different cultures and backgrounds together after such a long period of kind of divide. You know, from the outside, it seemed relatively smooth, you know, obviously for, for such big change, you know, on the inside, what was it like? Yeah, so um, it's it's a question that I, you know, you, you, in hindsight, you think more about. At the time, you're kind of going through a transition. It's not happening overnight, right? <clears throat> These things develop, and you would have obviously seen with de Klerk and Mandela and how that all progressed. And so it's over a number of years. It's not a kind of you know, suddenly we were, we're moving from one environment to another. So it wasn't hugely disrupted from that perspective. So I guess it was, um, this is why we sort of, uh, at the time, I certainly remember I was, you know, coming out of high school and going into university and life was, was great. And, uh, but with this big question about what is this going to mean and where's the country going to be sort of hanging over it. So I think, I think it's fair to say, obviously it was, it was very well handled. I think there were some amazing moments and decisions that were taken, which had been made into movies and, and, and lots on, you know, spoken about and, and should be celebrated. Um, I think at the time, I didn't really have an appreciation for what it really meant because it just wasn't happening that, that sort of quickly and wasn't disrupting my personal life in any, any major way. Now, maybe if you ask my, my say my parents' generation, that would have been a, a very significant change because they would have gone through a very different time and been there when the country wasn't sort of starting to become more democratic and stable and you know aligned to the rest of the world thinking. Um, that would have been a major change. So... Yeah, at the time, I guess it was just a lot of uncertainty about the future, but not a whole lot of change. And um, we can only look back now with, you know, extremely grateful um, that we had the man that we had coming in and that he did what he did and pulled the country together. Um, you know, so so from that perspective, it's uh, we sort of had a we had a very good transition and being being at the age I was. Um, it, it sort of didn't really change things too much. As I said, it might have actually just stimulated a bit of the thinking about going and seeing the rest of the world. And it was interesting time, you know, from someone born in New Zealand who's a rugby mag country, you know, for, uh, from a sporting point of view, it, it was a great moment because we were able to actually reignite our greatest rivalry in, in rugby, and that's against the Springboks. And as much as it's painful to, to lose that, uh, 1995 Rugby World Cup to the South to South Africa. In hindsight, it was the best thing for South Africa for that to occur, and, and we and I think the All Blacks really appreciate that as much as it was painful at the time. And 
I, I just remember how, seeing how much of an impact Nelson Mandela had on the team and had on the crowd when he came onto that field that day and greeted the players with the springbok on his back. Absolutely, and obviously we look back with, with pride and passion about that moment. But I think, you know, I, I was talking a little bit before about my experience and not, not really feeling and thinking back, not, not, not really feeling like this is major change right now and more, more thinking about the uncertainties. Well, you know, if you're not um, someone who's grown up in a more privileged uh, environment um, as I did, um, you're having a very different experience during that transition. You know, that could be exceptionally huge change and creating exceptional potential and opportunity and something to, to look forward to and something that people have been fighting for, a change for so long. So it depends on the perspective. And I think when you think about the World Cup, it's always interesting to to ask that question as well as, you know, from which perspective is Nelson Mandela seen as having done something amazing at the time, you know? Um, certainly from my perspective, I would say, you know, obviously hugely grateful that he, you know, he put on the jersey and... Uh, and he did what he did, and he galvanized, uh, you know, and he represented that through sports. I think that was phenomenal. Um, but there are others who have had the view that, um, you know, he should have been more direct on the change and, 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 and maybe made more of a statement using sports, you know, for, for what we're not going to stand for. And we had, you know, obviously a lot of discussions and controversy around the Springbok, et cetera. So it's all about perspectives, and that's obviously the interesting thing about growing up in a country like South Africa. It um, depends on where you've come from and how things have played out and... But overall, I think I would like to think we can all look back on that as a, a pretty phenomenal moment. And uh, yeah, I guess we've just had a, another one of those moments quite recently. Not of the same magnitude, of course. But, uh, <laughs> well deserved, though. Same kind of principles around doing something for the people rather than just for the team, I think, is, is the alignment there. Yeah, brilliant. So, so moving on to your career, you found yourself at AVN Amro Bank and fairly um, early in your career. So what was your role there and, you know, in, in that space, what was it like to kind of really move into that real world and be overseas in a Dutch bank? Uh, well, I, to, to be honest, I had uh, I was well positioned because by that stage I'd been through Stellenbosch University, learned Afrikaans, and therefore, and I was working in the kind of equity analyst and marketing team. So I got to... Um, and let's say decode the uh, the Dutch emails that are coming through from headquarters in in, in, uh, in the Netherlands. So I became very useful early on, at least just in terms of um, making sense of some of the uh, um, non English <laughs> non English communications that are going on. So that was that was great. Um, I wasn't in, in in banking for long. I think the sort of going back to the earlier part of my my story, I was standing around, you know, leaving the country. Um, I, I turned up on. The, the cold, um, windy shores of England um, around about Christmas time, just after, and uh, so certainly not prepared weather-wise. Um, I have family there, and but it, you know I wasn't targeting an investment bank as such. I just there'd been a lot of you know South Africans at the time, and obviously Australians, Kiwis um, going over and um, taking on roles in the banks, and generally you know well educated, prepared to work hard, and and so I sort of came through that but um, I, I, I was meeting with agencies and um, you know this is the CFECV these are my interests and so um, it wasn't my first job in in London um, my first job was something 
less ex- actually more exciting, but probably less less relevant, um, depending on how you see global investment banking. Um, but it was certainly a great experience just to to get into a very um, international environment. Um, I think it was 110 Bishop's Gates right near Liverpool Street Station. We had a 10-story uh, big glass building full of all these these banking banking individuals from all around the world, and it was just you know coming out of South Africa at the time. I think I'd, I'd never actually been on a an international trip uh, other than countries around uh, South Africa, you know Mozambique, Zimbabwe, these sorts of places. So for me, it was just um, yeah, it was a magical experience to be what I thought was then the real world. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't actually in in banking for long. I think. Culturally and just at the time, I was um, I was struggling to see how I would let's say make my way up and and be relevant. I think it was also at a time when you know we saw a lot of the graduates coming out of the big universities in the UK um, struggling to get on the banking graduate programs, and I was actually pretty much doing as many many of us were glorified kind of data entry, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I I just felt that I needed something that fitted a bit more to you know, how I am as a person and still something in the financial services industry. So I, I kind of went exploring early on, um, but a great bank and certainly enjoyed my, what well, was probably 18 months with it. And it was definitely a kickstart of a, you know, a career in financial services. You, you then moved into the Zurich Financial Services Group and you had a long career in, in that company. Just looking back, you know, what were kind of the key differences kind of working in a Dutch organization versus a Swiss organization? Well, yeah, I mean, so I think the, the Zurich's actually a very, it's an international company. So I think when you're working in, so starting out in Zurich in, in London or uh, ABN Amro in London, okay, you get the nuances of the culture, but um, they still, you know, you're working with predominantly people from the country, right? And it's, and they are international organizations, both of them. So I think the, the culture piece came through for me more strongly when I actually moved to Zurich with Zurich and you're in the head office and you get the feel. And obviously, you know, Swiss, Swiss companies and are known for being very professional. They're known for being quite complex, uh, very technical and detailed and all these these terms, um, safe, well-governed, and um, in general. Um, so the the culture was, you know, that's that's um, that's kind of stereotyping a little bit of Swiss organization culture, but there was an element of that. But we had actually had a we had an American CEO who was the former um, CEO and chairman of PricewaterhouseCoopers. At the time I was there, he had brought in, um, you know, a lot of the sort of thinking around how and, and some of the practices around how big. U.S. organizations are run and, and, and diluted a bit of the, let's say, strong Swissness of the company. And I think being an international company, that wasn't a bad thing. And so we, we were actually, um, Zurich as, a, as an organization, and I believe it still is, um, has that um, kind of Swiss core values, but it's very international. And, and you just walk into the head office in Zurich and you'll see that. Um, my experience was was fantastic in the early uh, parts of my career. It was throughout with Zurich. Joined at a good time in, in London because we had a, you know, a lot of this is, if you get the ex- opportunity when you are at the early stages of your career to work with a, a winning team and, and have a, you know, a, a, a very strong leader and a line manager, um, as I did, it's, it's, you know, that's obviously a, a huge opportunity for you in, in terms of developing early on in your career. And that's that's really what I had. 
I had great bosses. I had a fantastic mentor who sort of identified me quite early on and was very senior in a global, running a global business. And it was a team that was really capitalizing on an improved market situation and, and, and certainly did. And that business was under, you know, a very steep growth trajectory. So it was, it was a great experience. I was working in, in roles that also gave me access to directly to customers. In this case, it was the major corporations, so the, um, the risk and insurance buyers, some cases the C-suite members of those companies. And I was in, in my early 20s and, um, you know, doing the sort of financial analysis and support, um, analytical support for, for our, our relationship managers to our major clients. So it was just a, a great opportunity to have a balance early on with um, both the sort of somewhat technical part of a role, but also areas where I, I felt I was stronger, which is really dealing with, with clients and, and that interaction and engagement. So very fortunate to have probably the thing that stands out for me in answering this question is a couple of great great leaders who I, who absolutely inspired me and I was prepared to do most things for. Um, so I really had the, I had the bit between my teeth early in the career, specifically at, at Zurich London. So you, you fast forward a little bit more and you start, you found yourself in a CEO role uh, there with Zurich Financial Services. So how did you, at that point, uh, find the transition from being an employee into a CEO? This was uh, a very daunting time. And um, actually, before I tell you, answer the question, what it triggers is me sit, remembering sitting with my um, my wife and uh, back home. And we used to do the thing where we would talk about top 10 worst days. Um, and, you know, was that a number three or a seven or a nine? And we never got to one. And, and actually, it became a bit of a coping mechanism in the early days because it was a sort of a fire change in the sense that um, I'd been pre- previous to that. I was sort of 27 year old, got to Hong Kong. I was given quite a lot of responsibility. I was the chief operating officer for the, the corporate um, business in, in Asia Pac. We were building out this business in countries, you know, just great learning, very steep learning curve. But, you know, I didn't have that P&L and people responsibility and franchise responsibility. And so after three years of that, I was sent down to learn from a, a great boss who was running the operation in Singapore at the time. And, um, you know, five, six months in, um, he was picked up by a very phenomenal competitor and given an opportunity he couldn't resist. So I kind of missed out on the two years or a year and a half of sitting behind him doing, running the sort of client side and the operations of the business and was thrust right into it. And it was, you know, it was probably a single expat in a, in a very local team. And thankfully, I had just enough time to really build those relationships. But we were we were in an early build phase. So it wasn't a mature operation at all. So there were a lot of things that were running running thin, running hot. Um, we didn't have a great deal of process and infrastructure in place. And it was so it was just a... It was an incredible challenge if I look back now, but um, I had the right people supporting me above and uh, managed to get the the key people on the team on side. But um, yeah, that wasn't no, no smooth transition there. Um, probably my best learning experience certainly in my career this, that one year, 2000, 2012, that would, that would absolutely stand out. Um, since then, it's, you know, I've sort of had obviously a lot of different experiences um but that was that was a sort of all-encompassing ceo role where we probably weren't big enough to sort of hit the radar thankfully from a group perspective where there was going to be a lot of concerns so i was empowered but at the same time 
you know, you're dealing in a pretty mature and strong regulated market like Singapore and um, it's competitive and so uh, you've got all the all the different components. So, yeah, just a great experience. But um, the confidence built, it didn't start extremely high given the circumstances of the change. Um, but it's, uh, I've, I've sort of tended to... Um, find myself um, performing better when, when there are big challenges and rising to the occasion. So I think there was a bit of that. So yeah, that was, uh, that was 2012. So. Yeah. so moving on from there, obviously, a lot has changed. Yeah, so you're now CEO of Asia Pacific of Swiss Re. If you look back between when you took that first CEO role on to where you are now, what, what do you think are the biggest leadership skills or or components of of the way you lead that you've changed over that time so good question so the uh, i think the so firstly just to clarify so i yeah ceo of asia pacific for our insurance business at swiss re um called corporate solutions it's obviously a global business and i uh, i lead the asia pacific practice um headquartered in singapore so there's, there's some continuity there um i think the biggest change was actually the self-reflection um, at that time, I was sort of um, confident in my own abilities, um, had a strong success and track record of execution, um, had been getting great feedback through my earlier career, was always given kind of a, a step higher than I probably could take and I would take it on board and I was driven by this competitive drive and wanting to, um, you know, to be better than the, the pack and it was just probably not the right drivers, um, but it was successful in getting the opportunities. Um, what I wasn't doing is trying to think about: Is my leadership style relevant? Does it need to be adapt? What are what you know? What are my strengths and weaknesses? Really, I was kind of fueling the strengths and, and playing on those. And I think it's when I started to more self-reflect on my style, my approach, and learn more about leadership, and um, and then try to really focus on the things you don't like doing or, or your non you know things that aren't drivers that are super important for you. You know, as a leader, to be more rounded, or to find the right people around you to help you, you know, compensate and, and, and take a more holistic approach. I think that's, that's probably been the biggest change um, from back then. I always say the second part to that question, I would say, is I think judgment is obviously super critical in, in general management and CEO leadership roles. Um, there's lots of people that are very capable who can, who can probably do the technical components or, or manage people, but <clears throat> ultimately a lot of, you know, the people in these roles get um, you know compensated for their, their judgment calls and and those calls aren't always right but so part of that is about the experience that you get to actually have gone through circumstances where you know you know you, you're drawing on past experience but I think part of it obviously is also things like how quickly you can react and your own personal resilience your intuition your people connectivity etc and I think that second part is probably what um, you know I've relied on a bit more than in the early stages of leadership and, and experience and started to see where my strengths are around understanding people and the intuition and and trusting that, backing it up with data and science, of course, but, um, you know, making calls and, and making calls quicker and being more decisive, et cetera. And I think as a, as a young leader early on, it's quite daunting to, to make big calls unless you are risk averse and a, and a maverick personality. And, you know, I've got a bit of that. Certainly when we talk about the sports component, uh, it's always been... I've always been interested in, uh, uh, in in getting out and doing things that have a, a degree of risk for sure. But um, but as a leader, I, I hadn't got to there. So I think those those are probably two areas which are you know, significantly different now um, to seven years ago. 
So for people that are listening to the call and, and are kind of trying to figure out what Swiss Re really is, how would you kind of pitch it to someone and, and also what makes it stand out from its competitors? So Swiss Re obviously is that, so firstly, this is a, um, a, a long-term um, play. It's an organization that's been around for more than 150 years. So, um, so there's nothing wrong with talking about Swiss Re with some of those values that I've talked about, you know, in terms of um, being a, uh, a strong technical organization, steep in history, strong governance, global organization, Swiss values, etc. But I think if I was to talk about it and, and, and um, you know, how I would describe the organization from, from my experience and, and favorably to others, I think the, the differences with this organization um, to what I've seen with others is is we really are conscious about trying to make change and cha- and, and go with changing times. So, you know, at our core is our, our sort of mission statement around, um, you know, being smarter together with our clients, but also making the world more resilient. And I think it's that um, curiosity and, and kind of creativity to not just kind of accept the status quo, but recognize it's a dynamic world, it's always changing. And ultimately we want to make you know, our societies and, and build society resilience. We want to mitigate a lot of the trends and risks that are disrupting people's lives, disrupting organizations and companies. So I think that isn't in every company. Um, I know a lot of companies take a more of a short-term view. They're very focused purely on, um, you know, the financial discipline and the performance of the organization. I think these days you see more rounded organizations and there's a lot more pressure to think about things like ESGs and um the impact organizations have, but this has been in the culture of Swiss Re for many, many, many years. And so we, we're building on it, not trying to change the organization. So a lot of this comes naturally. So I think that's the thing that stands out. We, we recognize we have a responsibility, firstly, as a one of the largest and let's say most relevant global reinsurance companies. So we sit behind, obviously, a lot of insurance companies, which means you see and you are supporting the resilience of many organizations around the world and ultimately end clients ahead of that. Uh, and obviously then we've also got the insurance business, which is the area that I work in that I oversee in the Asia Pacific that's dealing directly with, with our clients. So we recognize this responsibility and we, we really do spend a lot of time and a lot of intellectual effort and capability in hiring the right people with the right culture to try and, you know, deal with some of these challenges, not just the ones we're facing today, but, but the ones in the future. So, so that's really what stands out for me. It's, a, it's a, an organization that is very conscious about its role in society and, and business and, and is very focused on, as I said, you know, building resilience where we can to help societies. That's, that's a standout. And so it's a gr- there is, of course, a, an elevator pitch, which you, you can do it in three points or, or one line, but... Um, I think it takes a bit of explanation to also understand that it's you know it's a cultural component of a of a company, not just a, a one line tagline that really defines it. Yeah, and it's good to hear. And talking about sort of global responsibility, you know, you've been part of the World Economic Forum Forum, uh, obviously at the beginning as a young global leader, and then on the advisory board as well. What attracted you to the World Economic Forum at the beginning? So the, the World Economic Forum, um, I had had involvement in prior, and what kind of attracted me was, well, well firstly, 
So the previous employer, obviously, Swiss, uh, Swiss company as well, Zurich Insurance Group, um, you know, we had a, a strong partnership with the World Economic Forum. I got involved in uh, a number of the areas. We used to work on global risk reports, um, which used to come out on an annual basis. We were So we were providing our expertise and data and insights to try and help, you know, deal with some of these, these really big macro issues and, and trends. And so... I'd sort of naturally fallen into some alignment involvement with 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 the WEF from a from a company perspective, but but it wasn't until years later that um, I actually got nominated by our then group CEO. Um, so we had an internal process that um, we put forward and and a a candidate and um, the stipulations on on the WEF young global leader are um, at the time of nomination you've got to be younger than 40, you've got to be in leadership roles, you've got to have had impact. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So um, yeah, I was accepted, and it's been a pretty incredible journey. I've had a. Uh, I'm actually it's sort of a bit nostalgic about it because I'm reaching. This is I've got one month to go before I reach the five years. It's a five-year term. I've been on the advisory group for the last couple of years, so I've been quite heavily involved. It's been great that I've had an organisation that um, you know has with Swissery. Obviously, joining Swissery also has a, a relationship with WEF and a big uh, significant Swiss international company and so I've been able to carry that through um, but this platform on the YGL and you know it's, it's it's been absolutely transformational for me because there's not only have you know I made great contacts and and you know seen interesting examples of leadership and all the rest but they the the, the platform they actually invest a lot of time in shaping your thinking as a leader and so we get to go on a lot of kind of leadership journeys and courses and definitely opened me up and broadened my perspective on what what is important about leadership, and and um, I think you know from that from that perspective, it's uh, it's been an incredible journey. The advisory group is more just a, a a group who helped the World Economic Forum with some of the governance matters, shaping the agenda, ensuring we are vetting the right people coming in, you know, getting more out of the journey over time. So it's it's uh, it's not a very intensive role, but that's that's also obviously been been an honour to be part of, really. So you're talking about coming to the end of your tenure there. What has been the greatest achievement that you have been a part of during your time with the World Economic Forum? So we have, yeah, so the, I mean, it's, it's not a personal achievement because I think the personal um, learning and development has been, that's been fantastic and I've, I've benefited hugely and I've reflected on that, obviously. But I, I think, you know, I've been, been part of um, a few... A few other people's journeys where they've achieved incredible things and, and supported them along the way and, and been able to bring the resources of the companies that I've worked for to the party and I think that's that's been the key thing I think as a you know coming in and, and having a very busy role and having a lot of responsibility within within the organizations that I have um, rather than trying to give up a lot of time that you just don't have I've managed to sort of at least be able to galvanize and, and utilize some of the resources that we have within our, within the companies. And just, just as an example of that, one of your, your country women, um, Mina Guli, who was very successful in a, in a business career in um, Australia, um, changed course completely. She's a, a former young global leader herself, set up a, uh, a non-profit organization in, in China called Thirst, which has really been focused around creating significantly scaling up the awareness about water security issues around the world starting in China but then broadened since then and and also trying to sort of galvanize solutions around water security which which if you read the WEF global risk reports you'll see is if not the top risk for you know that we face face going forward 
um, I was able to support her on that, and um, she's done talking about sports and, and running and all the rest. She's a phenomenal um, human being. She's uh, she set out to, to to run 100 marathons in 100 uh, days in different countries around the world, having already done a previous adventure the year before where she sort of was conquering deserts, seven deserts, um, you know, 49 marathons um, across the world. So just you know, really just finding an inner strength and absolute. Um, you know, focus for her passion to to really resolve this issue. I, I was able to join that, support that, um, support some of the uh, some of the funding activities, and actually ended up joining her on I think it was marathon number 21 in Hong Kong. Um, she made it far on that journey. She got to over 60 marathons, and the remaining 40 were run by by many many people around the world. And she's had sort of billions of activations, and so. It's not, it has. It's been a journey where I've been able to contribute um, towards the successes of some some amazing human beings who are doing some some really incredible things, and that's that's probably been some of the highlights. Um, I don't think I put my stamp on any single um, initiative that I've created that, that that's let's say meaningful enough to um, to share, but it's more been about the people I've connected with and being part of their their journeys, and also I think the what I've been able to do with bringing back the leadership learnings and um, putting that into practice. And, you know, I've tried to do a lot more kind of coaching, mentoring people within the organization a little, a little more informally outside. And um, so I think there's, you know, not trying to um, take this experience and keep it for myself, but really utilize it to have as much impact as possible. That's, that's really in the focus. Yeah, I love the I love how you've taken that, you know, obviously experience that's had been a great change in your life, but helped other people along the way. And then now taking those lessons to help help the future leaders uh, of the world as well. So I take my hat off to you for being involved with some some phenomenal activities. And, and that water crisis is something that, you know, people take for granted at the moment. Everyone kind of thinks that water's always going to be there. But it's, uh, the, as you say, the risk reports showing something a little bit different to that. And it's a little bit scary if we don't start taking notice now. Absolutely, um, it's a bigger issue than what the average person is aware of, and um, you know, and it doesn't. It's not just about water and how survival. It's about what comes before you run out of water, right? So there are other crises, there are conflict potentials, and all sorts of things that um, are interconnected. So, and I think that's where the where focuses a lot of attention from a risk perspective is understanding all these. Trying to make sense of all the interconnectedness and, um, and manage accordingly. It's a it's a massive web supply chain web of interconnected risks that we we operate in in a, in a global world, and um, this is one of the very very critical ones. Um, and we see that obviously I work in in an industry which is closely associated with risk, and so it's, um, there's some alarming trends that we're going to have to deal with. So you talked about early in, when you were young around sport, and it kind of come up a number of times. You talk about running there. So for you doing marathons and, and being out running, how does that help you as a leader um, and as a person? So, yeah, I think, I mean, we're getting a lot more awareness and data inside us about around well-being issues, right? So if we just start there um, and the importance of, of balancing, you know, as, certainly as a leader, um, you know, Balancing one's mind—it's not—it's um, not just done by um, by thinking. It's uh, you know one of the, the strong ways I've found personally, regardless of what the science says, 
of, of care in my mind and getting that kind of endorphin coming through and, and feeling good is, is to get out and uh, push the body a bit. And uh, uh, I probably take it to the extremes at times, not necessarily by the distances or what I'm doing, but probably just trying to get in too quickly. And uh, I guess as you get older, you learn those lessons with injuries and all the rest. But um, yeah, I, I, I always know when I haven't done for me personally, I'm not exercising and I'm not getting that because the first thing that happens is I normally start um, getting in a few more arguments with my wife, which I'm probably <laughs> I'm probably the driver of, and uh, it's just it's just a well-being thing for me. Uh, the first thing, the second thing I think is I've always loved competition. Um, I guess um, if I was just a better sportsman, I'd play so many sports throughout my my career. I never landed on one that I was good enough to make a career of it. I guess uh, unless there's one out there that I haven't found or invented yet. Um, but I've always been, I've always loved the competitive environment and that component of, of sports, whether that's in teens or personal. So it's just that feeling of chasing the goal and um, not always winning, but um, fighting hard and, and taking yourself into a difficult place. That's uh, That's been something that I've always kind of been attracted to. So combination of factors, but definitely um, I think well-being and state of mind and de-stress and all these things, um, you can you can do a lot by getting sleep and doing exercise, that's for sure. I find those two are solved many of my problems. So going you know, as a CEO, right, you've got a fairly busy schedule. You've generally got stuff coming from different angles and d- different agendas happening as well. How do you ensure that you can stay in a peak state of mind as often as possible and, and ensure that when you go into a meeting or into an interaction with someone that you are really present with them and you're giving your absolute 100% to them? So I think the, the importance is to recognize that you can't stay in that peak performance state of mind constantly, right? And so that's something that I've been, I would say, getting better at is not, um, is not loading myself up with too many um, sort of back-to-back high-impact expectation and just keep running yourself hot for four or five days in the truck that you're going to you're going to dip at some point in time. So I think, you know, I mentioned sleep. That's something that I, you know, a lot of lot of travel. Um, always trying to squeeze in a bit of exercise. I've got three kids, six and younger. Always trying to get time with the family and just trying to do too much. And um, I think um, you you can always slow things down and and manage your life better and and prioritize things. And so I think I don't find. Um, a challenge with kind of motivating myself and um, and being present. I think I like to always be engaged in discussions and part of the action, so to speak. So that that hasn't been what I've needed to necessarily focus on. What I've actually needed to focus on is just being more <clears throat> more calm and um, taking opportunities to step back and evaluate because I think that helps you make make better decisions rather than just you know you're running on the fly and you you're always chasing chasing so yeah so for me um how, how i sort of balance the time with with my family with my travels with with work with my my own pursuits it's just keep shuffling that right just so you 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 don't try and achieve too much and something's got to give and for me you know we talk about sports and exercise i've, I've started um i've started running again and i started uh Paddling and I have a surf ski and I paddle off the, the coast of Singapore. I haven't done that for a, for a few years and I've had a few small kids and you know they've kids have been priority and a lot of work changes in the meantime. So um, 
at times I think you just uh, you don't need to do it all and you just need to find that balance. I think that's that's been important for me. Of course, there are ways of getting in the moment, and I think some people have a lot of good techniques about that. Um, I think something that people often talk about is how do we how do you um, set yourself and get confident if you're public speaking or you've got to deliver something in front. There are many different techniques, and everyone has a different thing. I find stop, take three breaths, step away from it all, and uh, remember how how good the life is that you've got is is my method, right? But I think. I think, uh, you know, and, and I tried to draw perspective into um, how big is the situation really is, is kind of how, how I go about things. And you suddenly go, not really. This is actually not a big deal. They can do without me in this one, actually, um, even if I don't deliver perfectly. So, yeah, so just, just, just tricks along the way. And I think people need to figure out what works for them. But those are some of the things. It's, uh, life got a bit chaotic for me for a couple of years. And um it doesn't do, you know, you're only doing long-term damage if, you, if you're running on the edge and stress is building and you're not taking care of yourself. And I think that's, that's probably been a big, a big component of the learning that I've taken away from my time involved with this Young Global Leader Forum because they really emphasize this, they call it protecting the asset mm-hmm. because the stats are all there, right? And, um, you know, the data is there to show how our leaders putting in too much and, you know, the, the implications of that down the road. And uh, I haven't, I, I don't want to go through this whole journey to, you know, not present for the next generation and the things they want to do. I want to be running marathons with, uh, you know, with my kids one day. So for me, it's about now at this point in my life, it's about trying to um, just get better at making sensible decisions and prioritizing my time. Makes sense to you? How do you feel about, how do you feel about that? You, you obviously have a, you meet a lot of people and interesting CEOs. Does that resonate? Is that what you hear from others or have I got it wrong? Yeah, no, no, you're definitely on the right path. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, they just on all the time and it's just learning how to turn yourself off and be able to switch off and on because, you know, as you say, you can't be in that, that performance, that peak performance state of mind at all times. Um, you need to be able to oscillate, you know, with, with stress and recovery and you've got to keep that moving through on a regular basis. Uh, otherwise, the body just keeps adapting and you don't realize you're actually on a yeah. downward slope until you hit. Uh, generally, it's when you actually take a couple of days off or have a, have a break and then you generally get sick um, because the body's so good at adapting. And then once you give it that recovery, exactly. it, it, it teaches you a lesson and it holds you down there and you get sick and it will hold you down there longer and you feel like crap for a while before it lets you come up and... It's trying to teach you a lesson and sometimes people learn and sometimes they don't. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think, you know, you're, you're definitely uh, that I like the asset. I like the piece around the, um, the World Economic Forum around protecting the asset. And I think that's so important. Uh, it's easy when you're young to just keep going and going and going and you feel bulletproof. But definitely when you get into uh, the the mid, middle life and, and later years in your life, you realize that you that if you try and do that, you're not going to last very long at all. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like we got some aligned thinking on that. You actually just triggered a thought. So I was listening to a podcast the other day, and this is why I brought up the sleep topic earlier. It was, it was really around the importance of sleep, and um, you know the stat that was being kicked around was that. Um, there's only sort of a very small percentage of people who can actually um, function fully on less than seven hours and that it does have long-term impact, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm not trying to create a separate debate here, but, um, but the, inter- <clears throat> excuse me, the interesting one was, I was saying, you know, when you, 
when you're traveling and you're out of the, your normal environment, and I, I travel a lot with, with work, so I'm in hotels and overnights and planes and all the rest, um, you don't actually get into that sort of level three and four REM, you know, deep sleep where you're doing a lot of the body repair and, you know, really the required depth sleep that, um, you know, helps us function. Um, and some of the thinking and the theory behind it is because going back to, I guess, the early days of man, right? You, you, you need to be alert and be aware if you're in a new environment, right? This is predatory instinct sort of stuff that they, they talk about. And uh, so it's fascinating. And, but wherever it comes from and whatever the drive is, the, the, the point is you've got to think about all these things. Yeah, there might be lots of different science and lots of different views and perspectives. The one thing for certain I know is um, just calming down, getting a good night's sleep, um, waking up, doing some exercise, start the day in that way works for me. Yeah, sleep has the greatest impact on your performance and well-being ahead of nutrition or exercise. So it's the key one. Um, obviously, you've got to obviously balance that with your exercise and nutrition as well. Um, but it's yeah, it's the one that's forgotten a lot of the time. So I'm not so good on the nutrition side, so it's probably why I'm talking about the exercise and sleep. So uh, <laughs> I, I wish I was better on nutrition. I uh, I wouldn't be writing books on Jonathan Rake's diet, <laughs> how to be a leader with a diet, good diet. No, that's that's not coming out anytime soon. <laughs> We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? So the first time. So I think with, um, I kind of have, I guess we all have lots of little experiences um, that might not be too significant where we're doing something for the first time. Um, Certainly having young children, but, but one maybe that comes to mind is, uh, is something I did with, with my daughter the other day. So I've, I've fallen into a bit of a trap where um, I make sure I'm home for as many weekends as I can. A Saturday morning starts with, I'm the rugby coach, one of the coaches for the under sixes in, the, in this particular um, club and team. My son's a player and I'm just mad keen living vicariously through him and we're on this fantastic father and son coaching and starting, you know, batting uh, rugby career. And, um, and I kind of took a step back, helped find, you know, some observation from my wife and, and quickly realized, look, there's, there's a lot of one-on-one attention going here. Um, so I changed things up. I skipped the coaching and I uh, did daddy-daughter morning and, <clears throat> wow, it was, a, it was an eye-opener. I have not had proper conversations. She's five. My son, older son is six. You know, we've had a baby that's 18 months old and, I think the learning from it is, um, yeah, you must. Uh, you, we've got to watch that you don't sort of pile your passions into everything and you do what you want and um, that you end up operating in that way with, with children and also the people around you and, and work and colleagues and everything. So, yeah, you know, you've got to think about who's on the other side and what are you, what are you not doing and just had a fantastic morning with her. Um, the next one wasn't as successful. We had tantrums and other things. But, yeah, going to do more of that, just going to do more one-on-one time and I think I'm going to use been trying to take that into into my work environment as well because um, as you say asking good questions and and being a good listener or being there that's you know that's a sign of very strong leadership and it's always something that I have to you know 
um, challenge myself with, right, is, is find the balance between sharing my opinions, making those judgment calls that I talked about earlier, and uh, just going, mate, shut up for a second, um, listen what's coming through and take the signals. And Because uh, that's when, obviously, the that's when things get serious in a, in a discussion. That's when, um, you know, the openness and the transparency starts to unfold um, between, you know, in whatever environment it is. So I think you, you're spot on. Um, good questions, good listening. And not something that naturally comes to me, certainly not in the early part of my, my life and my career, so tending to focus more on that. But that's that's probably a moment two weeks ago that stands out for me recently. Yeah, I love it. What is the one question that you would love to solve? So we've been talking a lot about this machines versus people and uh, fourth industrial revolution and, you know, where's AI going to go and is Terminator the real thing? And yeah, I would love to just be able to um, look ahead and see where this all lands because it's sort of a question that I think many of us and certainly in business and all... um, don't have enough facts, certainly don't have the answers and really struggle to, to answer, but it's a fascinating one. I mean, so we, you know, you know opening up, I would say, as, a, as, a, as an executive within a corporation, you don't want to say, look, um, you know, X number of jobs are going to be put under, the machines can do all this, you want to focus on all the positives. At the same time, you want to be realistic, you don't want to be disrupted and being caught stagnant in an old world and there's all of this, but then you go to the much bigger picture around things, topics such as AI and the future of. So, um, I'll probably wake up tomorrow and say something else. I've just come from a few of these discussions today. <laughs> so it's very much top of mind. So I'm giving you a very uh, uh, you know, quick, short, top of mind daily answer that might change tomorrow. But that's, that's one that would be really good to have some, some insight into. Um, to solve, well, that's a whole, whole other story. At Active CEO, we're passionate about making a difference in people's lives. So we like to leave them a call to action. What is one piece of advice that you have received uh, over your lifetime that you would like to share with our listeners? So I don't think this is as much advice, but what I would say is something that really resonates with me. I know the the president of the European Commission repeated it recently, um, but it was this, this, I think it was an environmentalist in, in, in America who said we should be judged not by what we create, but by what we leave behind. And I think that's the world we're operating in now, where certainly as leaders or even anyone for that matter of fact, needs to um, shift gears a bit for what am I doing for personal gain and um, you know, for personal success and think about that impact and what we are not damaging and creating. And so I'm not trying to come across like I'm you know, changing the world and I'm going to solve huge solutions, but I think if we all think a bit more about what we what we're not um, breaking down uh, within societies, within cultures, within the environment, etc. So yeah, that would be that would be something I would leave people with. And uh, from a career perspective, and sports and all the rest, you know, have fun with it. Happiness is uh, the more you can be happy, the more I think you'll have success in in your life. So stay happy, be as, be as happy as often as you can be. Mm-hmm. Optimism and happiness. Um, that's that's worked for me in in my life. There are times not to be, but uh, yeah, that's. That resonates the most with me. So, so you've given away some great insights today and, and really provided some thought-provoking ideas. So how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you if they wish to? 
Sure. So um, I'm I'm certainly um, happy for happy for people to connect and share their experiences. And as I said, let me do some listening as well. Um, so I don't know how you you normally do this, um, but I'm I'm happy for people to um, contact me directly through my through my email. It's a straightforward Jonathan underscore rake at swissree dot com. Um, I guess I'll know how many users you have, and how many flooded I get. <laughs> but if people want people want to people want to reach out, um, yeah, Craig, I guess uh, you'll you'll have my details as well. Would be more than happy engaging in a conversation and um, yeah, whatever has triggered something uh, for any listeners who want to explore a bit more. And uh, I'm in my own learning journey and got a lot to learn, so would would love to engage. Yeah, so we'll put that in the show notes. Jonathan, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've enjoyed listening to you talk about your childhood life, starting in Natal in South Africa and going to Stellenbosch University to kind of experience something a little bit different, to then ending up in different cities all around the world as you have kind of not chased your dream, but you've also really gone out there to make an impact on the world. So it's not just about having a job, but it's what can we do as a collective to make the world a better place and, and kind of leave a lasting legacy that is, is going to help people in the future. Having that opportunity to be on the World Economic Forum is something that a lot of people would love to have. So to have that opportunity and to hear you talk about the lessons that you've learned and how you're applying them into your leadership roles now is really great to hear. Um, you talked a little bit around Nelson Mandela and the impacts that had uh, on South Africa and the community and it not always being the same. So depending on what position you're in and, and how you perceive that, that change that was occurring at the time. And, and then a great conversation at the end, they're talking about well-being and the importance of rest and exercise and and how that provides a lot of balance in your life and especially integrating that with you know how do you spend time with your children and and making sure that it's not all about you all the time so jonathan thank you very much and i look forward to continuing the conversation uh hopefully face to face in the future so thank you very much for your time excellent craig i think a good summary on it all and i've certainly enjoyed it myself so great what you're doing and uh Appreciated the time. Thank you for having me on. On this week's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about to diet or not to diet. People are often looking for the quick fix when it comes to food. Many people jump on the bandwagon of thousands of fad style, celebrity endorsed and marketing designed diets which have none or very little research into the long-term effects on the body, mind, and soul. You know, science compares every diet, and generally the winner that always comes out is real food. You know, the only diet that has been implemented and remains over a long period of time is that one that was established tens of thousands of years ago. You know, it's predominantly plant-based, with no processed foods, and only includes the occasional meat when they were quick enough to to catch it. Those living by the sea would catch fish and seafood, so why would you incorporate the middle person in the diet, so to speak, when you can go straight to the source and eat it from the ground? What do I mean by this? Well, land animals generally eat plant-based diets, including fruit, vegetables, and grains, and legumes, which are the stable of all nutritious diets. So why do we need to eat red meat when it is 
just a byproduct of the plant-based foods we need anyway. Now, I, I grew up on a farm, so I love red meat and still include a little bit in my diet, but why do we need to eat it all when we can just go directly to the key, to the, the original source and eat those plant-based diet? Food for thought for you. So what diet should you eat? Thank you for listening to an incredible and engaging conversation with Jonathan Rake, Launchpad to Go Beyond Borders, on episode 80 of the Active CEO podcast. Do you fuel your body as though it's a Formula One car or a diesel truck? If you were an athlete, would the food you eat help or hinder your performance? If you were to deliver the most important speech of your life, would you be energizing or lethargic? Being a CEO requires you to have the four basic fundamentals of human performance in balance. Exercise daily, fuel your body with the right food, free your mind, and recover with purpose. Without this foundation, you'll be limiting the height of your performance ceiling as a CEO. Active CEO coaching helps transform influencers to being high performing leaders. We have developed Breaking the CEO Code, which provides six phases to being a high performing leader. To learn more about Breaking the CEO Code and the Active CEO Coaching and Corporate Programs, then please contact me at craig at nrg the number two, perform.com, or click on the contact page of the www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. <laughs>